We've been uh, walking through this semester in theological equipping class, uh, biblical themes. We've been kind of seeing over and over and over and over again that the Bible, the scriptures, are one story, one book that is ultimately not about you and not about me and how we might you know, live our best life now or anything like that, but it's a story that is ultimately about Jesus. It is ultimately about the Son of God who spoke all things into being and who holds all things together by the word of his power. And seeing that reality, that we exist for his glory, is actually what's best for us. We see ourselves rightly, not as the point of the story, but rather we see ourselves rightly as created to worship God. We actually can have the freedom to not be the most important thing in the universe, but to actually set our eyes on the most important one in the universe when we see him rightly and see ourselves rightly. So we've been looking at all these biblical themes to get that point over and over and over and over again. So we looked at the theme of the kingdom, that Jesus is the king of the universe, the king of the kingdom of God, and that is what he is bringing. We've seen that over and over again as we've taught through Matthew. We looked at covenants. We looked at food, even, that by uh, the food, the fruit, if you will, all things fell into chaos in Genesis 3. So by Food, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, all things are made new. We looked at uh, the serpent crusher, how the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, that though the serpent has just tempted Eve and Adam and Eve have rebelled against God and broken all of God's beautiful creation, there will come a day when someone comes and crushes the head of the serpent. We've looked at themes like marriage and missions. And last week, Carl taught on the lowly being exalted. Over and over and over and over again, we've seen how God has woven these themes through his scriptures that ultimately point us to his son. And today we will see another major one, the theme of exile and return. Being exiled from our home and ultimately returning to our home. And like all teachings I feel like I've ever taught this semester, this will be like 10% of the riches that are in the scriptures. I've left so much on the cutting floor. It's, it's a frustrating thing to teach the word of God because every time you look at it, there's just more glory. And so you feel like you're just giving people a crumb of this glorious feast that is there. So just allow this to prompt you to spend a lifetime diving deep into God's word. So we'll look at this theme, exile and return. And, and perhaps a better term than theme would be pattern. Uh, James Hamilton, who's a pastor in Kentucky and a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote an excellent book called Typology, which actually uh, I have it at the end of the notes for one of the resources for you guys to look at, where he argues, and I think argues rightly, that all throughout the Bible, the Bible will establish what he calls promise-shaped patterns. God will make a promise, I'm going to do this. And then throughout all of the scriptures, we're going to see patterns of that promise play themselves out so that you and I might look and say, oh yeah, I remember he made the promise. So it reassures us of his promise and creates anticipation of fulfillment. So we looked at this when we looked at the serpent crusher lesson. So God promises in Genesis 3.15, though the serpent just caused all this chaos, one day someone will come and crush the head of the serpent. There's the promise. And then we get, in the scriptures later, a story of David and Goliath, one of many. And you have this uh, seed of the woman, this, this child of God, David, right, who's, who's blessed, who's of the people of God. And he's fighting this giant in scaly armor, right? This seed of the woman fighting the seed of the serpent. And how does David defeat him? Throws a stone and hits him where? In the head. It crushes the head of the serpent-like man. 
Right? We tend to read those stories and think, yeah, what are the giants in my life and how can I defeat them through my own willpower? When the story of the scriptures is saying, no, 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 remember Genesis 3.15, one day someone will come that will crush the head of the serpent. And we'll see in this theme, similar things, promised shaped patterns all throughout the scriptures of exile and return. Us being exiled as a result of our sin and our rebellion against God and the God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, bringing us home, bringing us back, leading an exodus out of exile and returning us home. And so, if you will, the Bible is almost kind of bookended with this theme of exile and return. We're exiled from our garden home in Genesis 3, and we return to our garden home in Revelation 21 and 22. And kind of within this ultimate bookend, you have two little, or I say more major kind of exile and return stories. Israel in Egypt and returning to the promised land and Israel getting kicked out into, uh, into Babylon and returning home from Babylon. So you have this kind of major bookend and within that we have two smaller ones. So that's kind of what we're gonna walk through in our uh, talk today. And we'll even see even more smaller exile return stories. So let's start at the beginning, like we always start in these talks. Let's start at the beginning. Let's start at our garden paradise home. So when you open the Bible, the first thing that hits you is this beautiful home that we were made for. I have the passage there. I won't read it for the sake of time, but just just look at that. Genesis 2, we see all these things. We see man formed out of the dirt by God's very hands, right? This, This intimate image where he molds the dust and breathes life into man. And then God plants a garden, this beautiful garden paradise, and puts man in the garden to work it and keep it. And you have all these incredible descriptions of these beautiful trees that are good for food, these rivers that are flowing from the garden all throughout all of creation, bringing life wherever they go. You see gold and all these precious stones described in the garden. You see the tree of life that is meant to be feasted on for eternal life. And you see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And most importantly, of this beautiful garden paradise, you see God is there. You see, God is there with man in this garden paradise, heaven and earth overlapping, the dwelling place of God being with man in the garden. This is the home that you were made for and that I was made for in this glorious creation paradise with God. And we need to see this because... If we don't see the glories of the home we were made for, we will not understand the tragedy of our exile. So here is the paradise you were made for, a garden paradise with God. And you see two kind of key elements with this term home. You see a a place, a literal geographical place, right? This Garden of Eden. And then you see God's presence, place and his presence. They're in the garden, but not just in this nice garden. They're in the garden with God. They walk with God in the cool of the day. And you need both of these things to call something truly home. There's this story right after uh, Israel rebels with the golden calf where Moses goes up to pray uh, to God to intercede for Israel. And God says, fine, I won't destroy Israel for their rebellion. And you guys can even go into the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses says, no thanks. 
you might as well kill us. It won't be home if you don't go with us. We'll have land, but that's great. What good is the promised land without my God with me? So you need both of those things, a land and God, or a place and God's presence. And we have that in the Garden of Eden. And then, as we say again every single week, it doesn't last very long until we get to Genesis 3. And Adam and Eve, instead of eating of the tree of life, instead of enjoying this garden paradise with God, they eat of the tree of death. They take the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they say, I would like to determine what is good and what is evil. I would like to be God. I don't want to just trust and submit to you know, what you tell me to do, God. In fact, I don't even know if your motives are pure. I want to be God. And so they take and eat and we see this good garden creation completely fractured. The whole good, very good creation of God fractured. And we see God pour out these curses as a result of their rebellion. Uh, gardening is going to be difficult, right? As man works the, works the earth and keeps it, it's going to be difficult. It will come by the sweat of his brow and childbirth will be difficult. They will fill the earth and subdue it, multiply it through much pain. So this creation mandate is now cursed. And then we see what is arguably the worst consequence of all come in Genesis 3, 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The ultimate consequence of the fall, the ultimate consequence of Adam and Eve's rebellion is exile. They are sent away from the home they were made for, and worst of all, they were sent away from him. And notice, God puts at the gate of the garden a cherubim, an angel with a sword, turning every possible way, guarding the way to the tree of life. They've been sent out, and there's no way back in. They can't sneak around another way. The way is guarded. They've been sent into exile, and there's no way for them to just walk back home. They are now living in exile. They lose paradise, and worst of all, they lose his presence. Michael Morales, who wrote one of the books I have recommended at the end, says this, we didn't just lose a paradise life, but we lost the foundation of our life and joy, God himself. In banishment, we lost the one that we lived for. We lost the significance and purpose of our lives. We are anxious, fearful exiles in the cosmos that was created to be our home with God. And so rather than going throughout the world and subduing it in God's name as those who live in his presence and live at home with him, we are sent out of the garden as exiles. Ian Duguid said this, Paradise has been lost because of their sin. Now they must live as strangers in the land from which they have, been, they have become alienated throughout the rest of the Bible. Now notice, again, we're looking at these themes because this isn't just to teach you one thing about the Bible. This is to inform how you read the scriptures. 
Okay, so we want to give you these themes so that when you see this throughout the rest of the Bible, you'll know here's why we wrestle with these things or here's why we have this longing. So what just happened in Genesis 3, our exile, is something that will be a reality throughout the rest of the Bible. Throughout the rest of the Bible, the state of God's people is one of profound exile, of living in a world to which they do not belong and looking for a world that is yet to come. So we see in Genesis 3, there's this ultimate exile, and here's the bad news for you and for me. It is also a universal exile. Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, and you and I are sent out with them. Everyone in this room was not born in Eden with God. Everyone in this room was born in exile, and as a result, you and I, as well as the rest of creation, will always have this longing for home. We'll always have this sense of homelessness that we were made for another world. Ian Duguid again says, exile, in theological terms, is the experience of pain and suffering that results from the knowledge that there is a home where one belongs, yet for the present one is unable to return there. This existential sense of deep loss may be compounded by a sense of guilt or remorse stemming from the knowledge that the cause of exile is sin. So not only do we have this kind of homesickness, it's accompanied by this deep guilt of knowing we are in exile and it's our fault. It's because of our sin that we're not in the garden with him in absolute paradise right now. Every one of us lives in exile. And C.S. Lewis actually dials in on this, I think, perfectly. He says, we all have this kind of inner sense of longing that shows that we actually aren't home. We're actually made for another home. A famous quote of his says this, if I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, I have this longing and everywhere I've looked, there's no satisfaction for this longing. I might get a taste, but it fades very quickly. If I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. When you just, he would say, you look at a mountain range and you're just overcome with awe and you taste a little bit of this, this, this joy. He called it stabs of joy. You, you try and grab it, but then it slips away. Eventually, you have to leave. Or you, you eat a nice meal, but eventually the food leaves your mouth and your palate ceases to taste it. You get these stabs of joy that's just enough to say there's something else out there that I was made for, but the stabs quickly go away. And he describes these stabs of joy like this. They're the scent of a flower we have not found. They're the echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never visited. We get these stabs of joy, Christian or non, that should remind us there's a home I was made for that I'm not in, that I'm not living in. And they're meant to point us to home, point us to the one who can lead us Home. So we're meant for this garden home. We all have this longing, just by the very nature of being humans, born in exile, we have a longing in us to return home. But we're not there. But remember who your God is in the very midst of sending them out of the garden. Genesis 3.15. 
there's a promise, a hint. One day they will be brought back. You and I will be brought back. God will send someone that will come from the woman, the seed of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent. And it would have been thought that if the serpent is crushed, all the effects of the serpent would be remade, would be undone. Stephen Dempster, who wrote in Dominion and Dynasty, another excellent book, says this, the triumph of the woman's seed, this promise that though the serpent seems very victorious over Adam and Eve right now, someone will come and they'll crush the head of the serpent. The promise of the woman's seed would suggest a return to the Edenic state before the serpent had wrought its damage. So as Adam and Eve are being sent out of their home and all of us with them, there's this promise that one day someone will come and he will crush the head of the serpent and he will undo the serpent's damage and he will bring us back. There will be a return from this exile to our home with God. So at Genesis 3, we see the ultimate exile. And again, the rest of the Bible is going to be in this state of ultimate exile. So if you keep reading in the scriptures, again, you'll see the scriptures kind of begin to scream at you, this promise-shaped pattern. Yes, we're in exile, but God promised someone will bring us back one day. Someone will defeat evil, bring us back one day. And so one of the first things we see is Abraham. Abraham, who uh, is promised this land, right, this land of Canaan, what we typically call the promised land, right? He's promised this land. He's promised a home, if you will, in Genesis 12. And then if you follow there in your notes, he's home. And then you see in Genesis 12, 10, there's this kind of exile where he goes from home, the promised land in Canaan, into Egypt because of a famine. And then once they're there, there's this type of captivity, right? His wife is taken by Pharaoh. Then as they're in captivity, in exile, there's this deliverance. There's this kind of exodus that happens where God delivers Sarah by plagues. Is this beginning to sound familiar? We're going to see this in the next book that we look at. God delivers them. There's an exodus, and then there's a return back to Canaan. And once Abraham gets back to Canaan, you see Genesis 15, I am Yahweh who brought you out. So there's just a tiny mini story in Abraham's life, which I would assume most of us have never really noticed, but you see that pattern. He's home, he goes into exile, they're thrown into captivity in Egypt. God delivers them by plagues. There's this exodus and there's a return home. That's a pattern. We are meant to read that pattern and say, oh yeah, God promised in Genesis 3.15, though we're in exile now, he'll bring us home. And it's meant to stir hope in our heart in the same way David crushing Goliath's head is meant to make us think of the ultimate serpent that will crush, or the, the ultimate seed of the woman that will crush the ultimate serpent. And so there's kind of a little mini pattern. There's so many of those. I just want to give you one as an example. So Abraham goes into exile and returns. And by the way, right after he returns, God tells him, by the way, your children, this great nation that I promise is going to come from you that you don't believe me yet, but you will once you see it, they're going to go into exile in Egypt, and they're going to be there 400 years, and I'm going to bring them out, just like I just brought you out. And if you keep reading, again, you see that promised-shaped pattern that's meant to remind us of God's faithfulness, and then you get to the nation of Israel, Abraham's children. You see Jacob renamed Israel and begins to have many kids, and this nation actually begins to grow, and again, they are home in Genesis 42. They're in the promised land, and then they go into Egypt, because of a famine. 
seeing the pattern, seeing sounds familiar. And in Exodus 1, they're in exile and they're thrown into captivity. And God delivers them in Exodus 12 or 7 through 12 by plagues. Again, this is the most famous story that we're familiar with in Exodus. God delivers them by plagues, displays he is far more powerful than Pharaoh or the false gods of Egypt. And in this deliverance, you see this very detailed story of a Passover lamb, that the exodus, the leaving of exile of God's people is going to come through sacrifice. And the scriptures here are giving us a glimpse back to Genesis 3. Your biggest problem, people of God, isn't Egypt. Your biggest problem is sin that needs to be atoned for. And so God will deliver them from their captivity. Again, we're seeing this pattern through sacrifice. And they're going to return to the promised land through the blood of a lamb. And so we have the Passover lamb that's painted on the doorpost. We see a Passover meal, a very detailed Passover meal where God says, I want you, Israel, to eat of this meal regularly. And when you do, you remember this event. You remember that I am a God who brings exiles home. I am a God who brings exiles home. I bring you to your promised land through sacrifice. And by the way, as he does bring them out of Egypt, we see the exact same thing he said to Abraham in Exodus 20. As he, they're returning home, he says, I am Yahweh who brought you out. And as they're being delivered, we know the story. If you're familiar with the scriptures, the, the Red Sea parts, Israel crosses on dry land. Egypt goes to try and destroy them. And God closes the waters on them and wipes out their enemy through the Dead Sea. And they're on their way, right? They've exited exile in a sense. And they have this kind of wilderness wandering where they're on their way home. So we get the book of Leviticus and Numbers. And as they're kind of at the edge of the promised land. They're at the border. Moses is about to die, and he gives one final sermon to the people that we call the book of Deuteronomy. It's Moses' final crescendo sermon as uh, leadership is about to be transferred over to Joshua, and he says, you're about to go into the land, and God is going to be with you. Now we have the tabernacle where God can dwell with his people. So you're going to have the land, you're going to have the place, and you're going to have his presence. And if you obey, this is what Moses says in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, if you obey, this promised land will be like the garden. Your crops will grow and your crops will flourish. You'll have peace from your enemies. People will want to come join Israel because they'll see the great name of your God if you obey, if you don't eat of the fruit again, if you will. But... If you take again from the tree of death and begin to walk in rebellion against your God, he will send you back into exile. He will send you back into exile. Again, exile, the punishment for sin and God's return is the promise of his grace. So again, kind of the final sermon hanging over their heads as they're about to finally return to the promised land is don't eat of the tree again. You want to stay in Eden, in this Eden-like place where you have this land and you have God dwelling with you in the temple, in the tabernacle? Don't eat of the tree. Obey him. Follow him. Don't rebel against him like Adam and Eve did. So from Genesis to Joshua, if you will, we have this kind of big story of exile into Egypt and return to the promised land. Remember, this, the Canaanite land is not the Canaanites' land, 
That's a weird way to say that. God promised it to Abraham. So in Joshua, as Israel is going through and taking the land, they are taking their land, right? They are returning home. Okay, so that's the first kind of big chunk we see of exile and return. So Israel, they do, in Joshua, go take the land. They eventually will, they have the tabernacle, they'll eventually build the temple, and they have this kind of, these words of Moses hovering over their heads. Don't eat of the tree again. They have the two elements, the place, uh, the land, and the presence of God dwelling in the temple. And so they have this kind of promised land home that's meant to be a picture of the garden, except, 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 except one giant thing that still hasn't been dealt with. Sin. God is with them in a very real sense. The, the, uh, the nation of Israel would even camp around the tabernacle, but in the tabernacle and eventually the temple where God's presence dwelt, there's a giant, thick curtain and stitched into the curtain. You know what it is? An angel. Who is guarding God's presence from sinful man? The angel that's standing at, gu- at the guard, the gate of the garden. The same angel that says, because of your sin, you cannot come back. Says in the giant thick veil, because of your sin, you cannot fully enter his presence. So their home but not all the way. They're still living in this ultimate Genesis 3 exile, and they're still awaiting the Genesis 3.15 promise of their ultimate return home. So if you know the story of Israel, do they heed Moses' Deuteronomy words, or do they follow exactly in the footsteps of their father, Adam? They follow in Adam's footsteps. They continually rebel. They continually declare the same thing Adam and Eve declared, which is, I want to be God. I don't want you to be God. I don't trust you to tell me what's best. I think I actually know what's best for my own happiness, so I'm going to do what I want to do. And they continually rebel against him, and God sends prophet after prophet after prophet that say, remember Deuteronomy. Remember Moses' words, exile is coming if this continues and they do not heed their warnings and eventually exile does come. They lose the land and, worst of all, they lose God's presence. Assyria comes and destroys the northern kingdom. The Babylonians come and they destroy Judah and actually take them out of their physical land into Babylon and then kind of the crescendo of their exile. Uh, Ezekiel sees this vision in Ezekiel 10 where he's looking at the temple of God and he sees God's presence leave. And so now that temple is not where God dwells with his people. It is an empty building. And then as the Babylonians are coming, their final destruction in Jeremiah 52 is actually destroy the temple. So Israel, because of their sin, they're sent back into exile. They lose the land, and they lose his presence. But again, don't forget who your God is, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The same prophets that he sent to say, remember Deuteronomy, exile is coming, promised a return. 
There was a literal return promised in Genesis 29.10. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed from Babylon, you're going to go into Babylon in exile for 70 years. And when that's done, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you the promise and bring you back to this place. So there's a promise to literally physically bring them back. But then there's all these other promises that really, really seem like there's going to be this ultimate return that God is going to perform. As God is saying, you're going to go into exile, but I'm going to bring you back. We see promises like, and I'm also going to write my law on your hearts. No longer is my will going to be external to you. Rather, I'm going to take away that heart of stone, that cold, dead, disobedient heart, and I'm going to give you a living heart of flesh. And I'm going to make your dry bones rise. And I'm going to bring everlasting peace where swords are beaten into plowshares and wolves lie down with the lamb and kids play over snake holes and things like that. We see promises that death itself is going to be removed. We see promises that the Davidic king, this great Messiah king, is going to sit on the throne and reign forever in perfect peace and in perfect justice. And God's name is going to spread throughout all of creation just like it was meant to. And even all the nations are going to stream in to this home, this home that God is going to bring us back to. All the nations are going to hear of God's rule and stream into the city of God. It's going to be a home like the garden. And most of all, God will be there with them. No longer will they say to one another, know the Lord. They shall all know me when we come home. There's these promises. Yeah, he'll bring us back to this geographical land, but this really seems like he's going to bring us back to the home with a capital H that we had in Genesis 2. And so we see that all throughout the prophets. And then towards the end of the Old Testament, we do see kind of this literal return in 2 Chronicles 36. As Persia destroys Babylon, King Cyrus decrees Israel may go back. And we see Nehemiah goes back and rebuilds kind of the city, rebuilds the walls. That's kind of the place, if you will. He rebuilds the, the place. And then Ezra goes back and rebuilds the temple. Those two elements of home, the place and the presence of God. And so there's this sense at the end of the Old Testament of they're back. Right? They've returned home, but it doesn't take very long to where we ask, are they back? Is this really it? Is this really what we were all hoping for? They rebuild the temple, and everyone who was old enough to see the old temple cried because it was so unimpressive. And also, where's the King David's son that's going to reign forever? And where's this everlasting peace? And my heart Where's these new hearts of stone? And death is still around. Oh, and by the way, this isn't even technically our land. We're still being ruled by the emperor of Persia and then Greece and then Rome. And so there's this sense that though they're back, though they're home, they're not really home. And so the Old Testament ends with this idea of, yeah, they're not in Babylon anymore. They've come back, but we're still this side of Genesis 3. And we're still awaiting Genesis 3.15. We still need someone to come and lead the ultimate exodus. We still need someone to come and defeat the ultimate enemy, the ultimate Pharaoh, and bring us out of the ultimate Egypt and bring us to our ultimate home. We're still waiting for that when we get to the Old Testament. And we transition to the New Testament. And right at the beginning of the Gospels in the New Testament is where we get our Christmas passages. By the way, what do we sing? During Christmas time, what's one of the most common songs that we sing? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, 
and ransom captive Israel who mourn in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. And you crack open Matthew 1, and you see the Son of God has appeared, and he's come to bring us home. Matthew 1, we, we looked at it a while ago, I guess. You start with this really long genealogy, and there's very little detail. So-and-so is the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. And one of the only details other than who's whose dad that's given is this reference to the exile in Babylon. It's one of the few details given, as if this one that the genealogy is about is going to do something about that. We saw in Micah 4, one of the minor prophets said, we are going to be, Israel is going to be in exile until a baby is born in Bethlehem. And that baby will lead us to our ultimate rest. And Luke, at the beginning of Luke, says, unto you, this day is born in Bethlehem, in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And the heavens scream in rejoicing because something historic is about to happen. Something is about to fix the ultimate problem that we have had from the beginning, the reality that we are in exile. From his birth, the announcement of Jesus is that Genesis 3.15 is here. The one we've been waiting for who will finally take us out of captivity is here. The ultimate Moses and the ultimate Joshua is finally here who's going to lead us home. And then we get to Jesus' life. And so a question, just kind of gazing at kind of the survey of Jesus' life, we can ask ourselves is, is there anything in Jesus' life that parallels the Exodus? that would parallel leaving exile to go home. Let's look. He fled a wicked king at his birth that wanted to kill him, just like Moses. He goes into Egypt, just like Israel. He returns out of Egypt, just like Israel. And Matthew makes sure we know exactly what God is doing. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophets. Out of Egypt, I called my son. In the same way that God delivered Israel through the Red Sea, through water, and then they enter into the promised land through the Jordan that parted, they enter on dry land, Jesus goes through water in his baptism. Not because he needs to be baptized. What does he say? I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. In the same way that Israel goes through water and then goes into the wilderness, Jesus goes through water and goes into the wilderness where he is going to be tempted and he is going to succeed in the same way that Israel goes in the wilderness to a mountain, Mount Sinai, where they hear the law of God. Jesus goes from the wilderness to the sermon on the mountain and gives the law of the new people of God, the kingdom of God, over and over and over again. You see this promise-shaped pattern yelling at you in the life of Jesus. You're meant to see what he's doing and say, wait a minute, I've seen this before. And I think I know what comes next. And I think this one might be here to finally bring us home. The transfiguration, that kind of weird story that we don't know a whole lot of what to do with. Look at this, uh, Luke 9. Uh, about eight days after saying these things, he, Jesus, took Peter and James and John and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. And behold... Two men were talking with him, Moses 
and Elijah, the ultimate lawgiver of the Old Testament and the ultimate prophet of the Old Testament. They're, two, they're, they're having this conversation with Jesus, which I imagine isn't just small talk. It would be a pretty important conversation. What does Luke say the conversation about is about? Who appeared in glory and spoke to him about his departure. You know what that Greek word is? Exodus. Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus at the transfiguration, and they talk to him about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What's that conversation about? The ultimate Moses is about to bring us home. That's the transfiguration conversation. Continuing on, we see the Passover meal. Israel, every single year, has the Passover meal to remember this is what we ate as we were about to leave our exile and return home. And Jesus Uh, right before he goes to the cross he sits down with his disciples and he has a Passover meal and he takes the bread and does not say anything about leaving Egypt he says this is my body broken for you this is my blood shed for you what this meal signifies is not leaving Egypt, it's leaving the ultimate Egypt. Through my body and my blood, we will lead the ultimate exile and return to our ultimate home. Jesus is quite literally reliving the Exodus story because he's going to bring about the ultimate and final return home. He's the new Adam. In the same way that Adam led our exile by his rebellion, Jesus leads our return by his righteousness and his perfect life. He's the new Israel. In the same way that Israel goes into exile and leads in the exodus, he will go into exile and lead the ultimate exodus and return to the ultimate promised land. And if this kind of pattern, if you think I'm just kind of picking and choosing these kind of patterns of his life, let's just look at Jesus' explicit words about the exodus. Luke 4 And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, Jesus, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, those in exile, and recover the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him and he began saying to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah saying, one day someone's going to come and he's going to liberate the captives and lead us home out of exile and Jesus stands up, reads it, rolls it up, goes and sits down and they look at him and he said, yeah, I'm here. John 14 in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, have not to- or would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus explicitly telling his people, I'm going and I'm preparing your rooms in our home. And then I'm going to come get you and take you home with me and my father doesn't get any more explicit with that. I'm coming to take you home. By the way, I'm designing your room for you. 
right? That's why I'm here to come and take you home. We've seen this place. And then what's the most important element we've seen? His God's presence. What does Jesus say? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. You want to get back in the garden and you want to be with the Lord? There's one way through me. You want to go live in God's presence? You want to get on the other side of that curtain? There's one way. It's through me. I'm the way. Except, again, there's still in his ministry this one problem. It was the problem for Israel, it's the problem for us, and it's sin. And so he goes to the cross after this Passover meal where he says, this is my body and my blood. He goes to the cross and he experiences the true ultimate exile. He's already left his heavenly home. He's already left the ultimate place. He's left the Father's side, the Father's side that he's been in for all of eternity. He leaves his heavenly home. He's even cut off from the land of the living. And then on the cross, what's that second element of home? What does he cry out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ian Duke says this, the one who for all of eternity had dwelt in the bosom of the Father, was thereby exiled from his presence. There has never been an exile like this. The eternal Son, who has been for all of eternity in perfect, beautiful, loving relationship with the Father, is cast out so that you and I can be brought in. He experiences the ultimate exile so that you and I could be brought home. And what happens after he cries out, it is finished? That thick veil with the angel guarding the garden, guarding the way to God's presence with that fiery sword, what happens to that thick veil once our sins are paid for on the cross? It splits. There is a way home because that angel's fiery sword has come down on him. The sword that was meant to justly, righteously execute you and I has come down on him. The exile you and I were meant to experience for all of eternity in hell has come down on him so that you and I, by his grace, could be brought home. Do you see what is happening on the cross? All the pain of Genesis 3 and all the hope of Genesis 3 is being perfectly realized in the Son of the living God, who has come as the ultimate Passover lamb, so that as God's wrath sweeps through the streets and comes to your home, it looks at your doorpost and sees the precious blood of Jesus and passes over you. And he brings you in so that God isn't just a just judge, but you can call him Father. You can cry out to him and say, Abba, Father. And God's presence now no longer dwells in the temple. It dwells where? In you. His spirit is no longer on the other side of a curtain 
barring you from entrance. His spirit now dwells in you as a seal that one day you will see his face and you will be with him forever. He is cast out so that we might be brought in. Michael Morales again says, the shed blood, the lamb shed blood, was the only means of departure, meaning Israel's departure from Exodus. And the resurrection life of the new Exodus is likewise found through a new Passover lamb, the crucifixion of Jesus. You could, it wouldn't be a perfect summary, but you could summarize the gospel in a way like this. God has come to bring you home. God has sent his son, John 3.16, to bring you home. And at the end of the story that we haven't gotten to yet, but we get a preview in Revelation 21 and 22, we see our ultimate return home. Jesus, again, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you, right, in the second coming. So he returns and brings about our ultimate return. We see he will once and for all crush the head of the serpent. Death will be no more. All the hopes of Genesis 3.15 will be fulfilled and we will be brought home. And in all the descriptions, read Revelation 21 and 22 slowly and don't think of end times debates for once. And just look at the beauty of your future home. We see, like in the garden, the tree of life is there and there's no angel guarding it. We see rivers that flow out into all of creation and heal all of the nations, just like we saw in the garden. We see beautiful jewels and gold and precious stones. Uh, and most of all, the dwelling place of God is with man, and we will see his face. God is there, and we will walk with him in the cool of the day for all of eternity, and there's no snake, and there's no sin, and there's no enemies, and there's no possibility of ever being sent into exile again. We're home to stay for all of eternity with the God we were made for. That's the home that we have coming for us at the end of the scriptures. So you could say the whole Bible is a story of exile and return to our home. And so now you and I, Christians in particular, live, we've seen this every week almost, we live in the season of the now and not yet, or the already and the not yet, this weird tension where we've gotten a taste of it. We've gotten the now. Again, the spirit doesn't dwell in the temple anymore. He dwells in our hearts, the veil has been torn. Jesus says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I will be with you always to the end of the age. Again, if you want to look back at C.S. Lewis's imagery, we've smelled the flower and we found the flower. It's no longer the scent of a flower we have never seen or heard. We've, we've tasted and God is with us. The veil has been torn. Our sins have been paid for, but there's still this not yet element. We're still longing for the dwelling place of God is with man and all things to be made new and the dragon serpent to be ultimately crushed and death to be no more. We have this tension where we are, uh, can still mourn but still rejoice. So at the funeral of a believer, death is still a reality, but Christians rejoice because though they may go in the ground, we are confident they will be raised and will live forever in this home. So we have this already not yet, our identity is what we're citizens where? Uh, 
Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says in Philippians 3. First Peter, uh, Peter says this as he writes his letter in First Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. Right, so you, Christians, are exiles in this world. Right? We're not home yet. We're not at the place, but you have a passport. And that passport says New Jerusalem. That passport says New Heavens and New Earth. Right? So we live in this kind of tension time. Ian Duguid again says, Christians are the true exiles living in a world to which they do not belong and with which they are not to fall in love while they long for a world which they do not yet see, but to which they look forward in hope. So that's our identity. I'm a citizen of heaven, though. I love Texas. You know, don't get upset. Uh, It's fine here, you know. But our citizenship, our identity is in heaven and then our purpose. As we live in this world, our purposes are quite simply to go and tell Everyone in the world, it is true, no matter how happy they pretend to be, has the inner longing to get home. And look at me, you know the way home. You know the one who has gone under the sword and leads to the Father. So go tell. Jesus, as he prays for his people in John 14, explicitly says to the Father, I'm not not asking you to take them out of the world as if they're going to go and hide and just wait for the end times. Send them into the world. And the same way you sent me into the world to bring about your kingdom and tell people the way home, I'm sending them into the world. We're walking through that in Matthew right now. Matthew 10, by the way. To follow Jesus means to go as he has gone and proclaim the gospel that leads home. The Bible will call us ambassadors, Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So you live here, but you are an ambassador of another nation, of another country, of another home, right? That's why we seek first the kingdom of heaven. That's where our home is. We store up treasures in heaven. That's where our home is. And then lastly, one of the things we see over and over throughout the scriptures, what does it mean to be elect exiles or those whose citizenship is in heaven? We be holy. And that doesn't mean snooty moralists, right? Be holy meaning set apart. First Peter 1, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Look at verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout, your, throughout the time of your exile. Right? We're still in exile. We're looking home. And so we live lives that display our hopes aren't here. Our hopes are unshakably in heaven. So as we wrap up, maybe time for a couple questions, but just practical things. That's the first one. Be Holy. First Peter again, First uh, Peter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among pagans that, though they accuse you for doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. Let your lives be set apart. Again, not in a just kind of moralist way, we boycott Target. 
kind of way, right? That is not attractive to the world. What Peter is talking about here is live in such a way that kind of befuddles the watching world as the world crumbles with anxiety, you have a peace that surpasses all understanding. As the world mocks and grows more tribalistic, you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. As the world is dying for satisfaction anywhere they can get it and found wanting every single time, go to the fountain of all joy, who is Jesus Christ. That is something that confuses but gives this strange attraction. You look like you're someone who's found the home that the whole world is longing for because you have. So be attractionally holy. Let your holiness be beautiful to the watching world. And if it costs you your life, like we see so much in the early church, pray for those who persecute you, as we saw Stephen doing, and let the gospel witness explode even more. Second, evangelize. I'm just kind of going in reverse order. Go and tell. You know the way home. Everyone is longing for home, even if they pretend they're content and you are ambassadors of the home country. Show people how to be reconciled to God. And then number three, live with this longing that is hopeful. Hebrews says we don't, we don't have a lasting city here. We're looking forward to a city that is to come. Don't put your hopes here. Don't put your life here. Set your mind on the things above because your life is in the new heavens and the new earth. That's where your life will begin. So set your hopes there. Don't let this world steal your joy so easily. Set your joy in your true home in another world and it won't be able to. And let this kind of stabs of joy that Lewis talks about lead you just to worship and praise the one who has come to lead you home. At the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, the final book, the last battle, a unicorn named Jewel says this as he's going into Aslan's country. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason we loved the old Narnia is that, some, is that it sometimes looked a little like this. But for them, this is Lewis, the author, talking, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their lives in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they are beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what you have awaiting you at Revelation 21 and 22. Set your hopes there. Live for that home. Let me pray.